Hi, I'm Rick Steves. It was a quiet Sunday morning, the day after Christmas 2004, when the lazy beaches of the Indian Ocean region were turned upside down by tsunami waves caused by a huge undersea earthquake. One of the hardest hit countries was Sri Lanka. It took a direct hit along a coastline famous among travelers for its paradise beaches and friendly villages. Today, the island is rebounding and visitors are once again boosting its economy. Sprawling tea plantations, fragrant Buddhist temples, remote beaches, pushy elephants, inviting palm trees, and no shortage of colorful festivals are just some of the attractions. To get us right up to date, we're joined by Lonely Planet author Ryan Verberkmos. Amidst this beautiful rolling terraced hills and these incredible tea leaves in all directions, try to figure out how many different words for green you can come up with. We're spicing up our travels with an insider's look at Sri Lanka. Coming up in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. The island long known for its tea and spices is also famous these days for a smoldering civil war and for being in precisely the wrong place for the wrong tsunami. But good travelers know Sri Lanka remains one of Asia's most remarkable and welcoming destinations. The author of the Lonely Planet Guidebook to Sri Lanka brings us the latest on travel to this fascinating island nation. Ryan Verberkmos, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you. Yeah, hey Ryan, when we talk about Sri Lanka, it has the name Ceylon that I grew up with a long time ago uh, from the British heritage. Is that right? It does. And in fact, when I hear that, I think a tea. I think of colonialism, too. Yes, very much. People sitting on verandas in linen suits. Is the indigenous name uh, Sri Lanka and the British called it Ceylon, or what's the deal with that? It was Ceylon under the British. It was uh, Serendib before that. Um, depending on the different group, it has different names. People in the north would like to call it something else. It's, it's kind of one of those places you can call it whatever you want. And one of the great things is the people are so mellow they don't take much uh, umbrage no matter what you call it. It is mellow. That's, you know, there's a lot of places that a travel writer might want to call mellow, but I think it's appropriate for Sri Lanka. There's a sort of magic in Sri Lanka. To me, it's kind of India in the extreme almost, although it's Buddhist, right? It's, while India is Hindu, Sri Lanka is Buddhist. It's largely Buddhist, but there's also a lot of Christians, a lot of Hindus, and a lot of Muslims. The Christian heritage goes all the way back to, uh, what, the 5th century or something? Well, it was, you know, it was on the route Going from east to west, it was sort of the, uh, if you went by water instead of overland, if you were a watery Marco Polo, you were more than likely to end up stopping off in Sri Lanka. And that went on for century after century after century. I think Christianity actually came to South India and Sri Lanka way, way back. And uh, you find it today a uh, surprising lot of uh, Christian heritage in that part of the world. You do. When the Portuguese showed up, you know, they were they were great people for roaming around on their boats. And I think they were a bit surprised to find a little bit of their own religion there right. after they had gone to so many places throughout South Asia that had none whatsoever. I spent a Christmas there once myself. I was surprised at all the fireworks they have. It's a dangerous place. Oh, fireworks are big. Fireworks are yes. big. But of course, Sri Lanka is primarily Buddhist. And I think it's considered one of the sort of premier Buddhist countries. Isn't it sort of a leader in the Buddhist world religiously? Very much. Um, it has so many sacred sites. You know, for instance, when you get up around Kandy, you could spend your life in a pilgrimage. Kandy being the uh, traditional capital in the high country? Yes. What would you say? It's got a richer kind of um, intensity about Kandy, the, the town of Kandy, for the, the, the Buddhist culture of Sri Lanka? Very much. You know, it's not a perfect comparison, but if you sort of think of it as the, uh, you know, the Vatican, with uh, Sri Lanka being Italy and uh, Kandy being the Vatican, because when you get to Kandy, it's all about temples, and it's they're, they're a spiritual people to begin with, and, you know, that spiritualism just comes out the pores once you're walking around Kandy. So do Buddhists across the Buddhist world look to Sri Lanka for leadership? That, I don't think so. I think that more it's part of the overall religion, and people will go there to be in touch with that part of it. I see. So it's a pilgrimage destination for Buddhists yes. from outside of Sri Lanka. I've been to sites there that the, the festivals are just like the most vivid memories. How important is it for a traveler to know when and where to go for these kind of festivities? You know, that can make the difference between a, you know, a great trip and one that 
is just so superlative that you'll remember it for the rest of your life. The good thing is is that there's quite a few throughout the calendar. No matter when you go, it's good to talk to people on the ground and say, oh, if this small town is having whatever type of celebration, just go there. Yeah. And to be flexible enough to uh, take a left turn instead of a right turn if you know there's some action down there. And that's absolutely right. And the great thing about Sri Lanka for that is that it's, you know, it's really a small place. It's, it's not very big at all. And you can drive from one side to the other in well under a day. So it's not a big deal no matter how much you think you've sort of micromanaged your schedule, which right. going to a place like Sri Lanka is kind of counterintuitive. You can always just, yeah, take a right, go down, see what's happening. I'm speaking with Ryan Verberkmos, who writes The Lonely Planet Guide to Sri Lanka. Ryan, I think one of the most uh, beautiful moments I had, being a person who grew up with North America on the center of a map of the world, was going to Sri Lanka and finding maps of the world with Sri Lanka in the center. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yes. It's the equivalent of you know going to Australia and finding their view of the world with the South Pole at the top. Right. Um, they don't have the break in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. You know, I mean, there's Sri Lanka and there's India. And then, you know, you can go east and you can go west. It's a humbling thing. And you get down to Sri Lanka and you realize, here's a, a leader in the Buddhist world. And there's a, such a variety of things you can experience. I thought I knew what fruits were. And you go to a different country and you have, you have a lot of fruits you wouldn't encounter. What are some of your uh, good memories of the cuisine scene in Sri Lanka? Well, like so many, um, you know, poorer countries... It, Everything is fresh because there is no refrigeration. There is no kind of storage. And that's something that a lot of people don't realize at first. They think, well, poor country, hmm. But no, what it means is everybody goes to the market every day and buys everything fresh. And what they cook throughout the day is what they've bought in the morning. So, you know, where people here are thinking, oh, farmer's markets and it's very shishi. Well, their life is farmer's markets. The fresh flavors, you know, nothing sits around, so it's all just bursting with spices and redolent with beautiful smells, and mm. the food is excellent. And one scar I have with my travels throughout South Asia and Southeast Asia is now every time I open a good-looking banana, I'm a little disgruntled because the best bananas I've ever eaten are the ugly ones you get in the developing world. Absolutely. You know, it's like so much of our, our fruit. It, it looks good. You know, it looks like uh, it looks like an old wax display. You know, it's a perfect representation of what we think an idealized banana should be. But yeah, when you go and get one that's sort of a uh, rusty brown with a few, uh, you know, red splotches, and then you, you know, one bite has more flavor than every banana you've ever had. I was there, and I had the good fortune of hiring a car with a driver. And it occurred to me it was cheaper to rent a car with a driver than to rent a car and pay for insurance. Is that still the case? Absolutely. You know. When I was there, I was there twice last year for an extended period of time. And that's just what I do, between 30 and $40 a day. And you get a good car with a guy who just knows the country up and down, and his life is taking people around and showing them the country he loves. And, you know, you think about it, $30, $40 a day for someone who's just there with you. And that includes the car transportation. That's that's it. And that's he helps you in. find a place to stay, and then he goes. He, you know, he could stay with you, but he'll probably go uh, find a, a humbler place to stay. So he goes home with more money in his pocket. He translates Absolutely. for you. He gets you all those experiences. He knows where the festivals are. That was the most important single tip from a friend of mine when I went to Sri Lanka was to hire a car with a driver. Yes, it makes all the difference, and especially when you get a good one. And they generally are good, but you know they can make all the difference in your trip because you'll say, boy, I'd love to find an unusual festival sort of like this. And, you know, he's the local guy. He knows everybody's got a friend in every town. And pretty soon he's like, you know, I heard about this thing and we can go up there and it'll be amazing. Now, it's kind of an odd situation because we are so incredibly wealthy to these people uh, just because of the different standards in the different countries. And you get yourself committed to one driver in one car, and he can, in a sense, have you captive, and he can derail your trip, and he can become very greedy, or he can be your best friend. Uh, the stakes are high, aren't they? How do, you, how do you get it right? You know what I found the best way is uh, who knows somebody? Somebody's got a cousin or somebody's got a brother. It's kind of like the business relationships you build up anywhere in the world. Uh, who knows who? Yeah. Uh, if I was going in and I didn't know a soul, the first place I stayed, wherever I was that first night, I would say, you know, I, I need a driver for four or five days. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're going to come up with somebody who's good because already they want you as a customer to come back. They want you to tell your friends to stay at their inn or their hotel. 
So they're not going to stick you with somebody who's, you know, a dud. Ryan, let's say you got 10 days and you want to hire a driver and you want to get a sort of once over lightly look at the island. Uh, describe to me the best loop for eight or 10 days that you would want to do for your basic introduction to Sri Lanka. You want to spend some time along the coast at because the, the beaches are really, truly incredible. And that's one of the things about Sri Lanka is that it's sort of a little bit better than all these other places that are great. So that when you say, oh, it's got incredible beaches, well, that's it sounds very overused. But they really are. You get to this beach, and the sand is white, and it's got the palm trees hanging over the sand. And it's kind of this idyllic, perfect beach picture. And the beach just goes on and on and on and on as far as you can see. And there's very few people. So it's uncrowded. And then you want to get up into the mountains where so many of the sacred sites are. And there's you know a myriad of sacred sites. So if I'm flying into Colombo, which, you know, you want to spend about three minutes in the airport. Um, first night, there's a little town near the airport that's on the beach called Nagombo. It's not a particularly spectacular beach town, but its advantages is that it's very close to the airport and so many of the flights get in very late at night. And kind of the last thing you want to do is if you're flying in from somewhere, then, you know, get on the road and drive for a few hours in a place you're completely unfamiliar with. So Nagombo is nice because it has hotels in kind of every price range. It's very relaxed. It's very mellow. You can find a driver there. So I would spend a day or two there just kind of getting my wits and, you know, deciding what am I going to do now to independently explore Sri Lanka. And then from there, I would just head south along the coast. I'd go through Colombo. Colombo is the capital, but it's not the kind of capital that you need to spend a, a capital time at, if you're mm -hmm. with me. Sure. Maybe pause. Pause long enough to uh, have a gin and tonic at the Golf Face Hotel, which is one of the classic old colonial hotels in the world. And this is one of the ways where Sri Lanka, being a little bit off the beaten path, benefits you because this hotel in any other place would have been remodeled about 107 times in the last 100 years. Well, instead, it's just a time capsule. Then you head south. The beaches are beautiful south of Colombo. Uh, I would head to Gaul, which is about 70 miles south of Colombo, which is an amazing walled Portuguese old town. I'd spend a couple of days there. I'd then continue along the beaches on the south coast. I might pop by Yala National Park, where they have elephants in the wild wandering around. Then I'd head up into the hills, literally, to places like Handy, which are the sacred temple towns. Pick some tea. There's tea plantations all over the place. That cup of tea you enjoy in the morning or evening, it may well have come from Sri Lanka. Might go past one of the uh, elephant preserves and then wind my way back down towards Colombo and uh, the airport. You know, Americans are always uh, traveling so fast. We have the shortest vacations in the rich world. How, how fast could you do that without being insane? Can you do that in eight days? Absolutely, because uh, it's a very small island. Right. And what I just sketched out, you're, you're not going more than, you know, 50 miles a day. Beautiful. We'll look into the impact of the tsunami and a smoldering civil war in Sri Lanka and how it all affects the country's tourism as we continue on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
Ik ben Rolinka Bloeming uit Amsterdam en ik reis graag met Rick Steves. In Dutch, that is, I'm Rolinka Bloeming from Amsterdam and I love to travel with Rick Steves. En in Dutch, ik ben Rolinka Bloeming uit Amsterdam en ik reis graag met Rick Steves. Dank u wel. We're talking with Ryan Verberkmos. He writes the Lonely Planet Guide to Sri Lanka. So we're just reviewing. This is a small island, Ryan, and it's a lot of diversity. You fly in to the big city. You mentioned the beaches are beautiful. I, I second that. The finest beaches I think I've seen anywhere, especially when you consider the beautiful uh, culture and the cuisine and the price. Then you go up into the mountains and you get all these uh, rich Buddhist temples and then you go to the uh, the grand tea plantations and gorgeous high country. And then you've got the cultural center of Kandy before returning to Colombo. So that's really uh, the best introductory look at Sri Lanka. Ryan, of course, December 26, 2004 is a day that people in Sri Lanka will never forget. That's when the tsunami hit. I know that you went down there working for Lonely Planet to make sure that all the information was correct for travelers and to see what was going on, and you've been there since. Tell us a little bit about the uh, impact of the tsunami on Sri Lanka and what's happened since. Well, you know, Sri Lanka is shaped like a tear, and unfortunately that's all too appropriate because the uh, they've they've had a bad civil war that went on for many many years, which they reached a, a bit of a truce in two thousand and one, and tourism really started to take off in two thousand and two and two thousand and three and two thousand and four as people discovered what a wonderful place it was and all the beaches and the sacred sites. Then the tsunami came along, and just I've been to a lot of places that have had natural disasters, and I've never seen anything like this. You know, the west and south and east coast where all these incredible beaches are, the water just came in and just washed everything away. You would see what looked like a sandbar that had been swept clean, and there had been a town there Hmm. on December 25th. No one really knows how many people died. The number they like to use is about 31,000, but, you know, someone would point and say, well, there were 5,000 people who lived there, and... We haven't seen anyone since, so it's it's hard to tell. It was already a poor country, and the people were used to getting by on little, so there was all the devastation in, in human terms, but then on top of it was they were just developing an economy that had a lot of dependence on tourism itself. There was a little bit of money starting to flow into these beach towns, and after the tsunami, people weren't coming, and that's been a, an ongoing difficulty for him. That must have been so emotional for you because you know these places from your guidebook research and you know these little mom-and-pop guest houses and restaurants and uh, to revisit those places and find out that their livelihood has physically just been washed away. What was that like? Did you actually see some places you knew and you had to just delete it from the guidebook because it no longer existed? Well, that was, um, you know, there, there was one area on the south coast where there was about 15 guest houses that were Beautiful little uh, low-key, very typical of uh, Sri Lanka because the political situation has been difficult for so long. There's not those kind of huge beach resorts that you find elsewhere. You have these beautiful beaches and then you have a little guest house with four or five rooms. And the one area, you know, I rounded the corner and what had been this very long avenue lined with palm trees and small, cute little guest houses on the sand, there was nothing there. It was just gone. There was just water. And you had to change your book accordingly. Absolutely. You know, and then it was just, you know, all the individual human stories. You know, I was there in January not too long after the tsunami. And, you know, it was a case of so many people. They just had been waiting to talk to somebody. They wanted to tell somebody what had happened to them. So this one, another guest house where that the guest house looked in pretty good shape near the beach. You could tell the water had come through. And I went in and the owner, very nice guy, he was sitting there praying in front of a shrine. And I said, well, you know hey, what's happening? What What's happened? And he just said, well, good to see you, but I'm just praying here at the shrine I just built because that's for my whole family. They've all vanished in, in the water. Oh, my goodness. That must have been just, just horrible to experience. Well, it was, you know, it's awful for those people, you know, as you yeah. go through the day, just story after story after story. And at the end of the day, the people who survive, they're still, they need to find a way to make some money. They need to find a way to eat. You know, there's no real safety net underneath them. Now, do you feel like you're contributing to the uh, rebuilding of the economy through the tourism? Well, as I was saying, the the 
economy has had tourism very fast becoming an important part of it for so much of the coast that what you kept hearing was, well, you know, my whole town is shattered, but if nobody comes back to see us, then we will be in a real mess. You know, that no matter how bad things are already, if people say, oh, well, they've lost their families, they've lost their loved ones, they've lost their town, we shouldn't go there. They're like, no, no, please get the other message out. Because if nobody comes here, we have no way to live. This is powerful, especially in a, in a land like Sri Lanka that's had the civil war and then the tsunami. I, I believe you could say the number one employer and the number one source of foreign revenue would be tourism. Absolutely. Now, the rebuilding, are there sort of uh, new codes for buildings? Are there unsightly safety walls in the beaches? Or, or what it, physically, what's the difference now as they rebuild after the tsunami? Not much. Um, there was a lot of kind of knee-jerk reaction saying after the tsunami that, you know, some of these places had been built right on the sand. They'd been built right up to the high tide mark. I mean, they were pretty ugly to begin with. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they were swept away. And afterwards, there was, you know, different governments were saying, well, you know, you have to build 200 meters back from the beach. Well, that quickly just all went away and places are being rebuilt exactly where they had been built before, right up to the high tide mark. Hmm. Given that the water went inland up to four, five, six kilometers, the 100 meters setback, the 200 meters setback doesn't really make much difference. Well, when I look at the map, the main road south of Colombo is literally right on the coast all the way along. Yeah. yeah. My goodness. Now, the other uh, tragedy in Sri Lanka's recent past is the Civil War. You mentioned they had a truce in 2001. The way I understand it, Ages ago, when the British controlled Sri Lanka, they wanted to take advantage of all the, the tea, and uh, the local people wouldn't pick the tea on the terms of the British, so they imported uh, darker people, basically, from Tamil Nadu in the south of India to come there and be the guest laborers of Sri Lanka. The British made their money, they got out of there, and Sri Lanka becomes independent, but you've got two different communities. You've got the uh, Sinhalese uh, people who were there first, and the Tamil Nadu people who came, who were brought in to work in the plantations for the British, and that was the seeds of the problem that erupted into this civil war. The Tamil Tigers, as they're called, were waging a war against the Sinhalese to get either autonomy or, or, uh, or freedom in the north. How, how does that all, did I get the history right there that's kind of simplified? Well, it is uh, one of those incredibly complex things, but that's a pretty decent simplification of where you've got two sides, and I don't know if there's a middle ground between them. Uh, they managed to work out a truce before the tsunami, and it had been holding pretty good because people realized that, hey, if we're not fighting, a lot of money's starting to come in here, and all of us who are having a pretty much dirt-poor, scratching existence are starting to see a little bit of, you know, tiny bit of wealth, a tiny bit of affluence coming in. Uh, after the tsunami, there was a big election last year, and unfortunately, a lot of people would say the very much the hardliners among the Sinhalese who just said we will never reach any kind of compromise with the Tamil Tigers in the north, um, they won. The people who were against any kind of compromise, and it's starting mm. to spiral down again. It is. So the civil war is still smoldering, and it could burst into flames. Yeah, it's definitely at that uh, that moment where the flames are right around the edges. And it just always points to me to the long-term sad impact of colonial greed because it really go the yes. roots of it are with British colonialism, aren't they? Yes. And the English are long gone now. Mm-hmm. And the country is divided. The troubles that were introduced remain and they're unresolved and... The two sides are so completely apart. And what's unfortunate is like in so many countries where you have two sides like this fighting, most of the people are actually in the middle. They they want peace. You know, they they don't want to have bombings and shootings and their relatives. You know, they've they've already had enough death on uh, December twenty sixth, two thousand and four. Sure. Is there a religious difference between the two groups? Well, there's a bit, but it's it's more than anything just politics. It's you know, the the, the Tamils who were brought in, they want a part of the island they can call their own. Right. And do they actually have an autonomous zone now where they uh, sort of run the show even though technically they're not independent? Yeah, in the north and in the east. You can travel there, but you need a, a visa to cross the border? Or how, how autonomous Well, no, it? it's the, the Sri Lankan government would never say that they have anything. Right. However, de facto, um, you know, they control a large part. They control about a third of the country. It's, it's actually pretty unsafe to, to get there. It's not that they have any particular problem with tourists or anything, but you have to travel through 
an area of, uh, you know, civil war. So you can just get caught up in trouble. So for most travelers, really the introductory quintessential Sri Lanka is that loop to the south of Colombo and then up through the mountains and back to Colombo. Very much. Okay. We have some callers. Uh, Mike from Fresno in California has been waiting patiently. Thanks, Mike. Hi there. Hi, Rick. Hi, Ryan. What's your question, Mike? So I happen to uh, have traveled to uh, Sri Lanka the month after the tsunami as part of a relief group. And at that time, we ran across some people from the U.S. and some people from Europe who had taken vacation time to fly out to Sri Lanka and volunteer with some of the, uh, the groups. And I was wondering if that was still something that was encouraged or whether that would be something that uh, would help out the people or have they gone beyond that at this point? Well, you know, I've, I was asked this quite a bit last year, and it still holds true now. In that first month, and I'd be interested to hear what you did, the, just having people laboring and mm-hmm. having people turn up to help out was such an incredible boost to morale to people. You know, I would be in a beach town where it was just covered in mud. You know, everybody's house who had survived, they had three feet of mud in the house, and it was just trash and junk and debris everywhere. And in this one particular afternoon, I watched as this team of Germans, and they were just German holiday people who had decided to come there and be useful. The 30 of them were just marching down the street, and they were just cleaning up. And that was so welcomed by the people. Now, most things are cleaned up. What I would I tell people who want to do something is I say get a lot of cash and go there and start traveling around in the areas that the tsunami hit and meeting people. And pretty soon you'll find someone who you give them $100 and you will change their life. That's a beautiful idea. Just get a pocket full of cash and just go and just travel and meet people. You know, have the kind of actually, you know, do what you would do on a really good holiday where you would be trying to learn about Sri Lanka and experience it anyway. But then you'll realize that, wow, I could really help these people. So that's what they need is cash. So, Ryan, you care about these people and you believe that would be more productive. Not that supporting a relief agency wouldn't be productive, but you don't think that would corrupt people or you don't think that would be just blown away uh, if you find if you go down there and find somebody who you really who who makes a connection with you just give them the cash direct absolutely and it's not to demean anything but i think you know you can give the 50 dollars to the international aid aid group but they're huge and there's right. a bureaucracy and there's expenses and there's overhead and then you can go there and you can give that fifty dollars to somebody who you know they don't have any money for the seeds they need to put in their food for their surviving family to eat next year and if you give somebody $3,000 who's used to making $200 a year, there can certainly be a corrupting influence. But if you give them enough money that gets them on their feet and just gets them the necessities that they need so hard so then they can concentrate on getting moving forward with their lives rather than just, well, what am I going to do now? You know, that brings to an image back to me before the tsunami. I was down on one of the beach resorts, and what I like to do is rent a bike and then just pedal to a village that had no tourism. And you can do that in either direction from the beach resorts. And you find these wonderful little communities living oblivious to tourism. Park your bike and walk around, and you'll be invited into somebody's home. And I was so impressed by the the happiness of these people and the commitment. They didn't have huge uh, material desires. They had a bicycle. They had a good house. They had a, enough uh, land to grow some food, and they had healthy kids. And we, I remember sitting in their house, and they brought out their scrapbooks and opened up, and they, they actually recounted the great days in the, in the lives of their children that were saved in their scrapbooks. And I just connected with those people in such a, a powerful way. And to think that uh, they would be uh, in such a struggle now, and like you say, to think of what $100 could do for them, that could be a great souvenir just to go down and meet some people and, and help them in a person-to-person kind of way. Yeah, it would not be hard for do-it-yourself help. Um, there was a British couple I met who they went and they just took some of their savings and they were just buying people mattresses because if you think about it, if everything's been flooded with you know 20 feet of water, well, the mattresses are all trashed. And they were just going around and buying mattresses cheap in the markets. They were buying locally made mattresses, supporting the local economy, and then turning around and giving them to people who had no mattress. Mike, uh, in uh, Fresno, were you uh, able to get into people's homes on your trip and actually meet people that weren't parked in front of the temples to make money from the tourists? Uh, no, no. We stayed uh, in a hotel, and we were transported to a, a medical unit. And uh, that's where they had a, a health clinic 
the local people. Uh, but they were also building uh, tents outside a mosque in uh, Hambantota. And um, I, I think one another question I had was uh, uh, we were always um, a little bit worried when we were traveling close to the uh, to the beach because we weren't sure if there was any warning system. And I, I think uh, that might be a concern for anyone traveling there now as to whether there is any type of warning, tsunami warning system in place because most of the tourist areas are going to be close to the beach. There's not a formal warning in the sense that there's certainly, you know, there's been a lot of talk of spending millions of dollars to put in something that would sense the water coming. I did see the unofficial warning system. In effect, I was in the old colonial town of Gala, and all of a sudden, thousands of people came running and ran up on top of the walls, which had survived the, the main tsunami. And the entire town, within about 15 minutes, was all standing on high ground. And it was because someone had called and said they'd heard from the radio that there might be a high wave somewhere. So, you know, the awareness that you need to worry about the waves is certainly now ingrained heavily in the people. I bet. Mike, are you planning on going back? I'd like to at some point. But I, I was a little bit worried about the current uh, Civil War situation because at the time uh, during the tsunami, it was, uh, I guess they had a ceasefire uh, for that year or so before it. And now it's, I know it's, it's kicked up a bit. But um, I guess the big question is whether most of the danger lies in the north or in areas that are more populated by tourists. Ryan, does the danger go south of Colombo? Well, there was um, a couple of bombings in the south in the last couple of months, mostly trying to put an exclamation point on the fact that uh, what's going on in the north is going on in the north. I think in a day-to-day basis, people are not affected by it. You know, the continuous hostility, the areas of real danger there in the north and east of the country. Is there an advisory against traveling there in the, from the United States State Department? You know, I was just looking. The U.S. actually has a fairly moderate warning. Uh, I looked at Australia, the U.K., and the U.S. just a couple of days ago. And uh, Australia and the U.K. are both pretty much don't go. The U.S. has a much more nuanced uh, warning huh. saying that don't go to the north or the east. I see. Mike, thanks for your call. Well, thank you. We'll continue in a moment with more about how you can visit Sri Lanka with our guest, Ryan Verberkmos. We'll also take your calls at 877-333-RIC. And you can follow up on today's discussion. Look for the message boards in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. 877-333-RIC and radio at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves, and we're getting an update on the island nation of Sri Lanka in the Indian Ocean from Lonely Planet guidebook author Ryan Verberkmos. And we have Carol on the line in uh, New Egypt, New Jersey. Carol, thanks for your call. Hi. Um... My question was sort of the same as Mike's about uh, my daughter and my uh, grandson are going over Christmas and New Year's. My uh, niece teaches in Colombo, and uh, they were going down to Hikadua and probably up to Candy also, and I was wondering about the safety of them uh, there. I, I was there in uh, February last year, and we did have a driver, and we did go up to Candy, and we did go to Hikadua. And in Colombo also. And how did you feel? How did you feel safety-wise? Uh, very safe. But um, since my niece teaches there, she knew people, and she knew the driver, and uh, we stayed at a place called Blue Ocean Villa in Hikadua, which was a friend of hers. And um, I felt very safe. Uh, I just wondered if it had gotten any uh, worse, except when I heard about the... Uh, bombing in Gaul, and also the assassination of the minister. I mean, we passed right by uh, where that minister was uh, assassinated. And I just wondered if you had any 
new information about that? No, I think it's as safe as it's ever been in the sense that, you know, the people are remarkably gentle and in a day-to-day crime sense, there's almost none. You know, there's these occasional exclamation points to mm-hmm. that one side or the other is trying to prove that there's a bit of a civil war, but you're so much safer walking down the street in a little town in Sri Lanka than you are, you know, walking down the street, say, in Manhattan, because the whole idea of street crime, is it's unheard of. Have the Tamil Tigers, uh, Ryan, ever targeted tourism to make their point? You know, not that I'm aware of. Someone could could prove me wrong. But even the attack in Gala, which is a phenomenal town, it was uh, bombing at a tiny naval base there. Mm-hmm. So even then, the explosion was aimed at uh, a military force. Because in some cases around the world, terrorists have, have targeted tourists to make their point, knowing that that's sort of an Achilles heel of the local economy. And one uh, disaster that way would, would ruin a country's uh, tourism. Thank goodness they haven't done that in Sri Lanka. No, you haven't heard of the hostage taking or those types of things. I mean, right. where people have to worry about the danger, it's just going up to where there's, you know, active fighting like you would anywhere, you know, and being caught in the crossfire. Yeah, and none of the tourist attractions that people are raving about are anywhere where near that. No. I remember when I was there, a huge population of Europeans were coming, and they had direct charter flights from many points in Europe because it was such a popular destination for Europeans on vacation. Is that still the case? Yes, it is. You know, the the beaches, the west and south coast beaches that go on and on forever and ever with all these little guest houses, people can go there and for, you know, $30, $40 a day have a beautiful room, all their meals, drinks, lovely beach, everything's mellow, it's pleasant. They get no shortage of Germans and Dutch. Right. Carol, when you were there, uh, how was your beach experience? It was very good, uh, except there was a lot of mosquitoes. Um, I would advise anyone to be on the second floor of any uh, guest house they went. I was on the first floor, and I really got bitten. Uh, But other than that, the beaches were beautiful. And just to to tell you that, I'm, I'm from New Jersey, as you said, and the beaches are much like the beaches in New Jersey, which really surprised me. No palm trees in New Jersey, but the sand and the surf is the uh, same. I, we met a lot of um, Australians who were surfing, and there's a lot of surfing in New Jersey, too. So uh, it was, uh, you know, like all home week. Well, I've never thought of New Jersey and Sri Lanka in the same breath, but uh, that's interesting. How about your experience with your driver, Carol? Uh, yes, my niece uh, had made friends with people from Sri Lanka down at Hekadua, and uh, this was a brother of the owner of the um, the guest house that we stayed in. So, yeah, it was very good, and he took us uh, to a tea plantation and had us um, uh, reserved a place, uh, a hotel up in Candy, and uh, took us to the El- Elephant Orphanage, and he knew the places to go. And I would highly recommend that they get a driver, anyone who goes there. And it sounds like you did what Ryan recommends, and that's go with sort of a, a friend of a friend over there who yes. wants to maintain a good, uh, sort of good reputation mm-hmm. because you'll talk and they'll send more business and so on. Yeah. In fact, our driver was part of a, a NATO um, over in uh, Afghanistan, which was very interesting, too, because I said, oh, you were the one with the blue helmet. And he goes, yeah. Wow. And uh, people generally spoke English that you met, or how was your yes, communication? Yes, they, they all spoke English. What do you remember about the cuisine? Uh, the best pineapple I've ever had in my life. On the beach. And mangoes. Uh, I mean, the fruit was absolutely fantastic. Carol, thank you very much for your call. You're welcome. Ryan, in your book you say that Sri Lanka is arguably the easiest place to travel in all of South Asia. Uh, why do you say that? Well, I think... Uh, a, it's the size, because it is so easy to get around fairly quickly. It's just not a very big place. B, it's like we were just talking about the English is so widely spoken. Uh, C, the people are just so naturally charming and friendly and relaxed. And no matter where you go, it's not like, oh, who's these oddballs uh, who have turned up in our midst? It's like, oh, hello. Very nice to meet you. Uh, you know, this is my town. Hi. There is that civility um, with the sort of uh, exotic jungle or tropics kind of feel, too. Exactly. I mean, there's that one uh, bird that you always hear in tropical movies that's sort of like, ah, 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 you know, and you hear somebody being very nice, you're having a little chat, and you hear that bird, you know, in the background, and you're like, oh, well, you know, this is kind of the perfect tropics ever. 
Maybe they got surf like in New Jersey, but they don't have those birds. No, they don't. That's right. Let's talk just a little bit about the nitty-gritty here. Do you need a visa as an American to go there? No, you can get one when you arrive. So it's uh, easy. You know, that's a lot of people they say when they say do you need a visa, what they're really saying is do you need a visa arranged in advance? Yes. Many countries technically require a visa, but it's just stamped onto your passport when you get there. So that's good news. Generally people fly in. Is there any sort of trick to getting there smartly from the United States? You know, it's it's literally halfway around the world. Yes, so you go east or west. You, <laughs> you really can. You know, you can go through, you know, places like London or Frankfurt or, you know, if you're on the east coast, I think you would want to go through Europe and if you're on the west coast, you know, you go through Singapore or Bangkok, one of the major hubs. And if you live say in Chicago, I think you flip a coin. Flip a coin. Also, uh it's very cheap to travel there except they do have a kind of a quote foreigner's price, don't they, where there's two standards? Well, there always is, you know, because in a sense, it would almost be immoral to insist on paying five cents for a meal or, you know, what the locals are paying. But, you know, the the foreigner price, you just say, well, yeah, you know, it's so incredibly cheap, even when you're paying the price that's been jacked up for your benefit. That's an interesting uh, mindset for the traveler to get in. You know, as a matter of principle, you don't want to be taken advantage of. On the other hand, we make in a week what they make in a year. If they're going to charge you double for your pineapple on the beach, it's not the end of the world. Exactly. And, you know, when you're sitting there, you're doing everything you could think you want to do. You're staying in a great little place, and it's beautiful, and it's just very serene and happy, and, you know, you're coming in for $50, $60 a day. You can't really complain with that. You can kind of say there's a language barrier when an American goes to England because they've got some different slang and jargon and so on. Is there any fun sort of uh, pidgin English you pick up when you're in Sri Lanka? No, they're pretty proud of, you know, it's it's a very well-educated country. You know, there is that one little bit of lingering badness that colonialism brings. But uh, one thing the Brits tended to leave behind was a bit of respect for education in schools. You know, when you're there on, in the morning and you're with your driver driving down the road, every kid is in his school uniform with more textbooks than I had when I was a kid marching off to his open-air classroom. You get that colonial heritage when you go to Gaul, don't you? That's that Dutch fort sort of the earlier European influence? It's kind of, uh, you know, pick your European because there was Portuguese there for a time. The the Dutch were there. They were there for the longest and did the most fort building. But then when the Dutch, you know, vamoosed, you had the Brits come in and the Brits were there as well. So you can kind of take your pick of, of European colonial powers had their era. But certainly that's the number one place I would send people. I would go there first and I would use that as the place to take my breath and sort of realize where I was, and then I was halfway around the world, and just say, wow, what an amazing old time capsule of a town. Gaul, G-A-L-L-E. And then you'd go into the interior, and you'd uh, find these, what do they call them, an elephant orphanage? Sri Lanka still has elephants in the wild in some of the national parks, and they have a long tradition of working elephants. Elephants get thrown out of work, uh, the lumber company goes bust or something, and they can end up at the elephant orphanage, which is really a home for wayward elephants. Do the elephants actually contribute to the economy in any way? I've, I've been in some places where they use elephants to, as kind of like moving, uh, like bulldozers or something. Well, it's one of those where very much they used to. Uh, right. They still are used, but obviously now you can get a bulldozer and crank it up. and Bulldozer you know, it doesn't, probably uh, eats a lot less. Absolutely, and it you know it doesn't get cranky. And if you really want to see uh, the wildlife, talk a little bit about four-wheel drive treks through the national park. Well, on the south coast, and it's a beautiful setting to begin with. It's called Yala West National Park. Very easy to get to. It's about a half a day's drive along the coast from Gaul, and it's got leopards, and it's got elephants, and it's got every kind of bird you can think of. Uh, in a very sort of African savanna setting. It's not a real lush jungle setting. It's more open, which is actually good because if it was dense jungle, you'd never see any of the critters. But you go there, there's all these dudes hanging around with their ancient jalopy Jeep just waiting for, you know, $30, $40. They'll take you out and drive you around till you've seen as many animals as you care to see. So you hop on your four-wheel drive, you check out the animals, and then you go down to a... Buddhist temple, and there's a festival going on, and there's a food circus of lemonade stand-type places outside of the temple, right? Right. And because, you know, a lot of people aren't doing this, it is just so low-key. There's just not a huge amount of tourists. The tourists that do go there tend to get stalled out a bit on the first beach resort they hit. Right. So people who want to even drive another half a day 
to get to the national park and go on a jalopy jeep safari, you're not going to see a lot of people doing that. It's not like, okay, you know, going to line up with the endless, you know, line of jeeps and everybody's going to go see the same elephant and, you know, you're constantly getting stuck in tourism traffic. Well, it's just not the case. Uh, you can still do some touristic things. Uh, a lot of tourists will pay to see firewalking, isn't that right? Very much. There's a lot of different ceremonies. I mean, the tea plantations that we talked about, they can be very touristy in one sense, but in another sense, it's a chance for you to sit there amidst this beautiful rolling terraced hills and these incredible tea leaves in all directions and try to figure out how many different words for green you can come up with. I'm talking with Ryan Verberkmos, and he writes The Lonely Planet Guide to Sri Lanka. And Ryan, early you, you explained the classic route that you take. It's about, I think, about 300, and 300, 350 miles, a circle from Colombo along the south coast. The road literally hugs the coast, and then you go inland up into the hill country and to the uh, uh, place that's most famous for the tea plantations. Tell me about visiting a tea plantation in the hill country. Well, I'm always someone who, who thinks it's great fun to see where whatever I enjoy, where it comes from, you know, like a brewery tour or something. Well, a tea plantation, you know, there's your tea leaves growing and there's all these people. I mean, it's a very labor intensive thing to grow tea. It's not just like it grows and you go pick a leaf and you got tea. There's people constantly tending these beautiful little plants and they are gorgeous little plants. And as far as the eye can see are the most astonishing green scenery. And you stop, you learn about how they grow, you see these plants, you talk to the people who are constantly tending and making the plants happy so they make good tea, and then you have the tea. So you're surrounded by tea, and then you you know, you know talk about fresh tea. People show you around and, and, and take you step by step? Absolutely, and you go into the, to the big warehouses where the tea is being graded, and you very quickly learn that, you know, like so many things in life, there's the very good and there's the not so good, and you find out what the difference between grade A is and the stuff they sort of pass off that it's nowhere near grade A. And in a very quick amount of time, you're a connoisseur. Well, I, I would say the highlight is going to be hanging out on these idyllic beaches. And uh, from my experience, there was the not not ritzy, but sort of the very um, well-visited, uh, busy tourist beach that was Hikadua for me, and then the more offbeat beach. And I found a place called Tangala. Tell me, Ryan, your assessment of the beach scene. If you're choosing from beaches, uh, what's the pros and the cons of the, the mainstream beaches and the offbeat beaches? Well, I like the ones that are on the south coast going east from Gala. Gala is the colonial fort town. That's just an amazing place to walk around and let history seep in through your pores. Then going east, it's beach after beach after beach. And I think you just go until you say, oh, you know, for whatever reason, this beach is perfect. Now, you can go as short as about four miles east of Gala. So after about a 10-minute drive, you get to just an incredible beach called Unawatuna, which is a perfect little cove of beach. And it's backed by a perfect little cove of palm trees. And it's got about 20 very low-key, mellow places to stay for about 20 bucks a night. And it's gorgeous. It's sort of your tropical paradise beach. And from there, you just keep going. You can go to Tangala, where you went, which, again, it's it's a much longer, it's less of a cove, but there, that's where you can, you know, just start walking the beach. And you can get in some serious miles along the beach. There's incredible surf, uh, bigger choice of places to stay. And it's town after town, beach after beach like that. And I would just, with my driver, just go and say, let's try this one. You know, you mentioned surfing. I remember people said, be careful of body surfing. You know, it's dangerous. And I, I was a lot younger then, and I, I went body surfing, and I got caught up in a wave, and I, I feel like I almost broke my back. It was one of the most scary episodes I've ever had. Do people get hurt body surfing in, in Sri Lanka? Are there places that are good for body surfing? What are your uh, comments there? Yes, there are definitely good and bad places. And again, that's where it's good to just talk to people because no one wants to see their guest, their visitor, their their newfound friend in any way hurt. And people are very quick to say, oh, very bad beach or, you know, be very careful at this beach. Or I think you will be very happy if you go body surfing at this beach. People will very quickly steer you the right way. And uh, of course, when you're laying on the beach, you've got your glass bottom boat experience where you can go out and, and do a little sightseeing that way. The big thing is always get some snorkel and a mask and fins and go out and see what's growing. Uh, there's reefs all over the place. Go, you know, shuffle around the reef for a little bit and then uh, come back and uh, dry off under the palm tree. And then you got your mom and pop little place a couple hundred yards inland for dinner. You can walk around and there's all the travelers there. This is really the uh, international backpacker kind of scene, I think. Yes, sitting in a bamboo chair that's right on the sand with the sun going down in the distance and they've handed you a cold beer 
and some fresh uh, shrimp, to quote our Australian friends, around the Barbie. Uh, doesn't get much better than that, especially when you say, wow, I think I just spent $30 today. Ryan, you've spent a lot of time in Sri Lanka. What have you brought home in your everyday life? How has it affected you and just your outlook on the world? Well, it was so much of it has come from uh, being there in January of last year. And then again in October, I went to the same places and saw people, how they were picking their lives up again. And oftentimes in circumstances that, you know, you can't really adequately describe. It just sounds trite or cliched. And no matter what happens to you during the day, you can say, I've met people who have showed such grace and fortitude in absolutely unbelievable circumstances. So if I can conjure up about 1% of that, I can probably deal with whatever life throws at me. Wow, travel can put things in perspective. Ryan Verberkmos, author of The Lonely Planet Guide to Sri Lanka, you make me want to go to that beautiful, tear-shaped island filled with grace south of India, Sri Lanka. Thanks a lot. You're welcome, Rick. And happy travels. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online, including listener feedback, archived audio on demand, and podcast extras. It's in the radio section at our website, ricksteves.com. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.